Welcome, dumbheads, to MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. In this final leg of Season 5, I'm reading my way through every single goddamn page in The Revenge of Kang, the final module in the Time Warp Adventure series for TSR's Marvel Super Heroes role-playing game. And as I do, I'm identifying the dumbest thing on each page. Every episode is one page, every episode is short. The Revenge of Kang was written by Ray Winninger and was published in 1990. Today we're discussing page 45 of The Revenge of Kang. Today's page contains two chapters, chapter 22, The Big Dance, and chapter 23, Again, comma, Kang. There's no punctuation to suggest those inflections. It's just the only way to read those two chapter titles. How else would you feel about these two chapters? You get to go to a big dance, be a superhero pretending to be a teenager, and have all kinds of uh, 1960s teenage shenanigans, and then once you're done having fun, then you got to go fight Kang again. Speaking of dealing with Kang again, I think we are going to have to in this episode because that's where the dumbest thing is on this page. But let's not ruin this joyous occasion right off the bat by talking about Kang. Let's talk about the big dance, chapter 22. As you will recall, two members of Ford's Furies made the Hoover High football team at today's tryouts, Iron Blood and Cub Scout. And in addition to killing it at the battery of football tests with which the coach challenged him, Cub Scout also caught the attention of Jenny Carson who was a last-minute date for Peter Parker. She was going to go with him to the dance, which is why he was going to blow off the nuclear science exhibition, where he was destined to be bitten by a radioactive spider and become Spider-Man. Cub Scout won the heart of Jenny Carson, or whatever part of her it is that demands a constant diet of football players. And now your boy Cub Scout is taking Jenny Carson to the dance. Quote, The hero has no problem getting to Jenny's house and walking her down to the Hoover gym, where the dance is being held. Walking your date to the dance seems like a loser move. I would know. I was a loser in high school, and that's what I would have done. The other members of the team will just have to go to the dance in different guises to watch Cub Scouts back. Probably Iron Blood, having already made the football team, will go to sort of be Cub Scouts wingman. Not going to be too much of a problem. Iron Blood looks a little bit like a high school jock. He's not a teenager, of course, but he has a, a youthful appearance due to his blood's high iron content. And Scoop didn't make the team at football tryouts, but she did try out, so she has already adopted a teen boy cover identity, uh, so she'll presumably go in that guise, and All Ears is going to need more of a disguise to fit in, so let's say he'll get his hands on a costume and go as Hoover High's mascot, or perhaps paint each of his ears a different primary color and pretend to be a cluster of uninflated balloons. Whatever. Doesn't matter. Cub Scout is the star of this show. He and Jenny Carson. Here's the box text for Cub Scout as he enters the building. Quote, you finally arrive at the Hoover High dance. As you enter the gym, you see hundreds of teenagers dancing and laughing. Now, if I had one complaint about the big dance, it's that the author kind of lets us down here. I would have loved to see uh, a table of things that can happen at the dance or a list of people at the dance you might want to interact with, some old Spider-Man bit characters perhaps, maybe a cameo by some other 1960s characters. You could have had uh, Johnny Storm here on a date. But instead, all we get is, quote, throw in any role-playing encounters that would be appropriate at a 1960s high school dance, which is kind of letting us down, but at the same time, if you can't find a way to have fun with this scene, what are you doing GMing? It's not that hard. You got a superhero baby wolf cub disguised as a teenage boy trying to go on a date and save the world at the same time. This situation is rife with dramatic and comedic potential. It's overrife. It's falling off the branch. There is one mandatory encounter uh, listed under the helpful heading of mandatory encounter, Quote, at some point during the dance, one of Jenny's friends comes up and asks her why she isn't with Flash Thompson. When Jenny replies that no one has seen Flash all day, her friend replies, quote, 
That's strange. I saw Flash this morning, and he told me that Coach Cook had asked him to stop by his house this afternoon to pick up some game films. Maybe he never showed up. So there's the clue. Structurally, this is what we're here to find out. The fact that uh, Flash Thompson was last seen saying that he was going to go to the coach's personal home to watch some game tape, uh, and that no one has seen him since. No one has any idea where he is. But this is the 1960s, and so instead of the coach being in jail and there already being a true crime podcast about his evil deeds, nothing has happened. Presumably the coach is still at his house, and I guess everybody just figures, you know, the best policy in these situations, when a boy disappears, you want to wait 24, 48 hours. Just let those golden hours fly right past. And then if he's still not around, uh, you know, maybe try something. Maybe put out a bowl of potato chips on the porch and see if he comes home. That's how you find a lost teenager. Anyway, now we know where we need to go. We need to go to the coach's house, but not yet. We're at the date with Jenny Carson. She found it in her heart or whatever to come to this date with us. We can't just ditch her. So, of course, Cub Scout is going to schmooze Jenny, listen to her stories, tell some of his own, get to know her. I mean, not for real. Obviously, he's got to lie about everything. He's going to connect as best he can. We haven't gotten to Ford's Furies in the TVA archives yet, so you don't know this, but Cub Scout, his real name is Wilby Lowell. Uh, He served in the uh, USMC in Korea, so he doesn't maybe have a tremendous amount in common with Jenny Carson, but honestly, his frame of reference is more similar to hers than to, like, the secret Zoomers, so, you know, maybe they'll have a good time talking about movies and stuff, or he could just kind of, you know, cozy up to her and she could scratch him behind the ear, just whatever. When you're a man and a puppy, you have so many different ways to have a nice evening with someone. I know what you're thinking, isn't he going to shed on her dress? Yeah, who fucking cares? Does she have another prom tomorrow night? What the fuck? Have a good time. Live it up. It's not all going to be war stories and scratches behind the ear, though, because there's another encounter here, an optional encounter, listed under the heading Optional Encounter. Quote, if the heroes tangled with the bullies in the cafeteria, they will meet up with them again at the dance. This time, the bullies are back in force. Four of the thugs will try to pick a fight with the hero escorting Jenny. If it takes the hero longer than five rounds to finish the bullies off, the chaperones will arrive and demand an explanation. So, All Ears is a man of peace. He's currently dressed as whatever the mascot of Hoover High is, perhaps a shanty, the official domicile of the Hoover administration. When you're a man of peace and you're dressed up as a Depression-era shack, you don't want to jump into a fight with a bunch of rowdy teenagers. Not casually. He's there if he's needed. Ironblood and Scoop, on the other hand, Ironblood at least, he's got the Letterman jacket, he's on the football team. If only to maintain his cover, he's got to jump in and back up Cub Scout. Scoop might get in there too. I don't think Cub Scout and friends are going to have any difficulty taking down these bullies. If Cub Scout gets carried away, he may bite one of them, but it's not going to be too much of a tell because Cub Scout's bite only does poor damage, which is not out of the realm of what a normal person would do if they bit someone. So when Cub Scout attacks someone, like until the forensics come back, the assumption would just be, this is a rowdy little motherfucker. This is a wild teen. You would need to consult with a zoologist to figure out this is this is a wild and rowdy cub man. There's a very slight difference in the bite pattern. So anyway, yeah, we'll, we'll take down the bullies, stand triumphantly over their pathetic, limp teenage bodies. Honestly, I think after this display, Jenny Carson is going to be overawed. Those who've been following my work for a long time may know that I wrote a role-playing game called Panties of Legend, a little riff on the old RPG Panty Explosion, which doesn't actually feature exploding panties. My game does. Sometimes something is so powerful, it makes your panties explode. Suffice it to say... This whole high school gymnasium, lacy tatters are going to be falling like confetti after two football players back-to-back beat up the bullies who are trying to ruin Jenny Carson's night, but all the explosive power of her teenage loins will be to no avail 
of course, of course, Will B. Lowell is an honorable man, and he's in his goddamn 60s. Nothing is going to happen except everybody's going to have a story to tell. At the end of the night, there's going to be maybe one chaste peck on the cheek in his capacity as a puppy, not as Jenny's date, and everybody's going to go home happy. So that's the dance. That brings us to chapter 23. Again, Kang. And we're only just going to start on this chapter. It extends to the next one. But this is where the text lays out Kang's plan very clearly. When Ford's Furies go to Coach Cook's house, they get the following box text. Quote, Coach Cook lives in a simple two-story home in the St. Albans neighborhood in Queens. As you approach the house, you notice all the lights are out and everything is strangely quiet. And I'm going to read you directly here from the judge's text because all this is going to become clear. So there's no need to worry about spoilers, really. Quote, After the Kang duplicate arrived in this time zone, he piloted his time ship to a place of safety and observed the situation. Eventually, he discovered a subtle way of preventing Peter Parker from becoming Spider-Man. Subtle, you say? Do tell. Quote, by getting rid of Flash Thompson. Kang traveled to the home of Thomas Cook, one of Flash's football coaches, knocked Cook and his family unconscious, secreted them away, and called Thompson's home using his 30th century technology to duplicate Cook's voice. As Cook, Kang told Thompson to drop by his home later in the afternoon. When Thompson arrived, Kang knocked him unconscious and hid him away in order to guarantee that Jenny Carson would go to the Hoover High dance with Peter Parker. Kang is still waiting around in this time zone in order to make sure everything comes out okay. If something goes wrong, he has a contingency plan to kill Parker shortly after he gets his spider powers. My dear listeners, I give you genius-level intellect. This green and purple motherfucker traveled to the 1960s Took a, took a safe position and really just watched out, like really scoped out the situation. Got to know Peter Parker, got to know this era of human history. And after careful consideration, because keep in mind, his dominion over the timeline depends upon this. After careful consideration, Kang decided, I see that dame Jenny likes some brawny. She goes for muscles, not for brains. But if I know Jenny, and after weeks of being a cross-time creep, I do. If I take that Flash Thompson out of the picture... Jenny will turn around and jump on Peter Parker like a toddler on a trampoline. He just, he knows because he's studied so intently this whole situation. And not only that, but he knows how to get Flash. You see, he's trying to be subtle. Could he just kill Peter Parker? Sure he could. But why kill Peter Parker when he could just keep Peter Parker from going to the science exhibition? And sure, he could just arrange for the science exhibition to be closed or arrange for Uncle Ben to have a flat tire or whatever and not be able to take Peter to the science exhibition. But why would Kang do that when Kang could arrange for Peter Parker to get a date? And sure, he could mind control Jenny Carson or anybody to take Peter to the dance. But why would Kang do that when he could leave Jenny with her normal mind, well, her mind as it is, and simply have her current date to the dance disappear? And sure, he could kidnap that date. But why would he do that when he could instead render unconscious Peter's prospective date's current date's coach's family, throw them all in a closet, or maybe two closets, we're talking about a lot of people here, then use a voice modulator to pretend to be the coach to call Thompson to get Thompson to come over to the house, then knock Thompson unconscious, then once Thompson has disappeared, wait for Jenny to find out that Thompson has disappeared, realize she needs a new date, then go to Peter and offer to go to the dance with Peter, at which point Peter decides to go to the dance, therefore can't go to the exhibition, therefore no Spider-Man. It's all so simple. And all it required was for Kang to become unnervingly well-versed in the social situation here at Hoover High. I mean, what can I say? This is obviously the dumbest thing on this page. I'm, I'm happy for what it gave us. I'm happy we got to do this whole undercover mission to the high school. But the idea that Kang would arrange this situation in this way strains credulity, even by comic book standards. 
especially given that Kang is hanging around waiting to kill Peter after he gets his spider powers if this doesn't pan out. It's like even Kang knows this is a bad plan and not a believable one, but planting like a tiny car bomb on the spider would be a more believable plan than this. This is ridiculous. That's the dumbest thing on this page, but sincerely, I forgive it. I'm just glad we got to go to the dance. That scene was basically everything I wanted from the premise of this adventure. I am satisfied. Thank you, Ray Winninger. My panties, platonically speaking, are in fucking tatters. This was great. But it's over now, so join me next time when we've got to fucking fight Kang again on MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. This has been MDC. New episodes drop every day except for Sundays, when all the previous week's episodes drop in one big megasode on the top-secret patrons-only RSS feed. If you'd like to get access to that feed and support the show, go to patreon.com slash megadumbcast. Contact me however you want. I am Megadumbcast on Twitter, Gmail, Podbean, your favorite podcatcher, etc., etc. This episode's music, used under Creative Commons license, is Take Us to the Nearest Starbase by Astrometrics, whose work you can find at soundcloud.com slash astrometricsband.